Okay, uh, how many of you watched Super Bowl Sunday this year? Um, anybody watch the Super Bowl this year? Three, four of us? Where, where's my brother-in-law, Justin? That's not a good sign, is it? I mean, he's a Philadelphia Eagles fan. Now, if you follow the storyline of the Super Bowl, the storyline of the Super Bowl actually began not, not on Super Bowl Sunday, but in the beginning of the season, where it, it looked as if um, in the beginning of the season, you know, there's these teams that begin to emerge, and of course the New England Patriots are most likely going to be in the Super Bowl. I mean, we could say that next year, and it would be a pretty good prediction. New England Patriots are going to be in the Super Bowl next year. And that's, that's a pretty good prediction, isn't it? That's kind of been a pretty good prediction almost every year. And then you have the Philadelphia Eagles, and they're an emerging team, and, and Carson Wentz is, is a, a, a solid quarterback that is growing each and every game and is doing better and better. And they are looking like Super Bowl contenders, aren't they? And then all of a sudden, Carson, Carson Wentz goes down, and you think that the Philadelphia Eagles are done. I mean, that's it. Their season's over. Like, maybe we'll get through the first round of the playoffs if we're lucky, but we are certainly not getting to the Super Bowl with Nick Foles. And then you have a backup quarterback who goes in and in very ordinary ways just does his job. Right? I mean, he, he wasn't killing it in, in any stretch of, of my imagination or his imagination. He just went in and steadfastly produced results each and every game. Some games he lost, some games he won. His job was to put his team in a position to win, and win they did. So you have Super Bowl Sunday. Backup quarterback to the Philadelphia Eagles was once their starter, traded away, then sent back because they knew that he knew the system and they had a reliable arm in Nick Foles. And now you have the backup quarterback against the five-time world champ, Tom Brady. And you, you had the picture of Tom Brady's five rings that were on his hands and you think Philadelphia Eagles and Nick Foles don't stand a chance, but it was in the ordinary work of this Philadelphia team that went together and delivered the win, and they turned upside down what everybody thought was going to happen, except for maybe a couple Philadelphia Eagles fans, right? <laughs> but the Patriots, the Patriots had met their match against the Philadelphia Eagles. We love these stories of reversals. We love the stories of, of the underdog who finds their way back to win. We love the story of the, the person who, who lacks skill or adequacy that, that later on proves everybody else wrong, that thought they couldn't do it. We, we love these stories of reversal, unless we're the ones that are on top that are being brought low. But, but the story of Esther is the story of dramatic reversal. It, it is a story of God upending everything that you see to be true, everything that you see to be going a particular way, and, and God working in the ordinary ways, extraordinary things for His people. And the book of Esther shows that God's hand through and through is working underneath what you see. 
that in the silence, God is speaking. You know, in, in our everyday life, we, we, often, we often don't have an awareness that, that God's movement is happening, like right now. No, God's movement is happening right now in this very instance. And, and the book of Esther shows us that, that God is silently sovereign. That means that, that God is holding up all things in accordance with his word and power, as it says in Hebrews. That in Jesus Christ, it says in Colossians, that in him all things hold together. In the book of Romans, it says that from him and through him and to him are all things. And, and yet we, we live somewhat detached from that reality because we're, we're going to leave this place and, and we're going we're gonna to say yes and amen to these things. But, but here's the great danger that happens with our lives today is, is we walk out the doors and we forget. We forget. We forget that somehow this whole world is being held together by the unseen hand of God and that God is actually in control of all things. We also forget that God's providence is always happening in our lives. How many of us have had experiences in life where, where you wanted God to do something, but he didn't? Anybody? Anybody ever had that? Yeah. Yeah. We all have, haven't we? But how many of you have later come to realize that it was God's grace that that didn't happen? Anybody ever experienced that? A few of us? A few of us? Maybe we're still a little mad that that thing didn't happen. <laughs> we're a little upset here. But, but God in all things is, is working for the good of his people. When, you, when, you started, when we started to read the book of Esther in chapter 1, you see a ruthless king who's celebrating himself. You see a king who is parading all of his wealth and riches before the kingdom of Persia to say, align with me, because if you align with me, you're safe. And if you don't align with me, you're dead. And he did that by giving a demonstration, right? His wife... Vashti, his first wife that we read about, said, I'm not going to align with you. I'm not going to do what you say. I'm not going to come before your, your army and your men and let them Google at me. I'm not going to do it. And so he disposed of his first wife, and he had to find a better wife. And his advisors come next to him, and they say to King Xerxes, Ahasuerus, his, his Greek name is Xerxes, they come to him and they say, surely in the land of Persia, this, this land that's vast and wide and large and filled with women, there's a wife that's suitable for you. There's a wife that's better than Vashti. And so, the, so someone comes next to the king and says, I have an idea. Why don't we put together a queen-finding cabinet and let's create offices all around the land of Persia and let's bring in all the beautiful young virgins into these offices and bring them into your harem and, and then there will be a contest to where these women will be brought before you and you will be able to pick your wife from among the most beautiful of the land. And then this Jewish girl, Hadatha, is her name. She was an orphan. She, she didn't have father or mother, but she was adopted, even a gift of grace of God, by her cousin Mordecai. And she was taken into the harem, this 
Jewish girl, this girl of, that, that God had made to be his daughter, was in the harem of King Xerxes. And the harem was the place of the king's concubines. And if they didn't become the queen, then they would go into this life of the palace concubine. And that was the, the, the state of what these women had to expect. That was what Esther, that's what her future held for her. She would either be the queen or she would be one of the king's concubines. How, how could God be at work in that? How could God be at work in that? But somehow we see that even though Esther becomes the queen, which none of us would say, that's a rags-to-riches story. Well, that's like the Eagles winning the Super Bowl. Actually, when, when she became queen, it caused our hearts probably all to say, no, 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 not, not Hadassah, not this daughter of God in, in the ruthless hands of King Xerxes. But God showed his unseen providence because we see that a little bit later on in the story, the people of God were under attack. Haman, who was the king's right-hand man, prime minister, had it out for the Jews, wanted to see the annihilation of the Jews, wanted to see the people of God crushed forever. They were enemies of the Agagites, which was part of the bloodline of Haman. They wanted to see the, 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 the Jews completely done, never to be spoken of again. And when he found the right opportunity, he asked the king to put it into the Jews. And he didn't say even their name. He, he just got next to the king and he said, there's a people who don't follow your rules. There's a people who are different from everybody else in the land. They don't profit you, king. And so I would like to put... 10,000 talents of silver in your war chest, which sounds good for the king because that was the currency of the time. If you put money into the battlefield, you had the king's ear. And when he said that he wanted to put money in the king's coffers, the king said, sounds good, let's do it. And so there was a decree that was written. It was to be 13 Adar. 13 Adar. That was the day that the declaration was made, the unchangeable law of the Medes and the Persians, it was written, they were to be killed. Women, children, no survivors, no defense, it was to be done. But yet, we saw that there is a person that God has in the king's court. And Mordecai, her father, when hearing the, the law that went forward and knowing that Haman had had it out for the Jews, he arrived at the king's gate the day after the decree was there and he was in sackcloth and ashes and he was weeping in dependence to say, God, we need something to happen here. Now, I know you don't read the name of God here in the book. Actually, the name of God is not mentioned even one time. But underneath the silence shouts that when you feel at the bottom of yourself, there's a place to go and to cry out to God. And so they cry out to God and Esther's brought into the story. She, she in 
her incredible, incredible political display begins to woo the king over to herself. And as a result of wooing the king over to herself through these banquets and feasts, she it has the opportunity to tell the king what has taken place. That wicked Haman is out, not after the kingdom for himself. And the decree that was made against the annihilation of the Jew was a decree that would cause the king to kill his own wife whom he loved and all of her people. The king had Haman put on the gallows. He had him run the stake through him on display. But yet the law still couldn't change. The the law was still in full effect. Even though Haman was dead, the law remained and 13 Adar was there. It was to be the day that the Jews were annihilated. But now Mordecai and Esther are in the king's court and Mordecai has been given the place of prime minister. And so Mordecai, with the king's blessing, writes another law. The law can't overcome the first one. It doesn't doesn't replace the first one, but it's a law with equal authority and power that commands that the Jews who are in the land defend themselves, that the Jews who are in the land take up arms, that the Jews be able to kill and annihilate anybody who tries to kill and annihilate them. And so on the 13th of Adar, which was expected to be a day of mourning and grieving and sorrow and sadness and death became a day of victory because God delivered his people. It was a divine reversal. It was much better than the reversals that you see of any football games. It was much better than the reversals that you would see of any rags-to-riches story. In fact, this is the reason that the story of Esther is in the Bible, is because the Jews were God's chosen and protected people and God's preserved people. The reason why we have the book of Esther in the Bible is to say that God cares for His people. God cares for you. He cares for me. And then in God's care, He flips the world upside down in everyday, ordinary ways. You you know that there's no real miracle that you see in the book of Esther. That's why I find fascinating about it. You you don't see any any real divine miracle where God parts the Red Sea or where they march around Jericho. You you don't see those divine miracles. But probably one of the greatest miracles that you see is is that on, on the night that Haman wanted to kill Mordecai, the king stayed awake. He couldn't sleep. And he ended up reading about how Mordecai saved him from being assassinated. And as a result of that, the whole thing began to turn around. It was the pivot point of the book. And also, it's the pivot point that allows us to see that our lives oftentimes aren't changed by some drastic, incredible miracle, but God working through everyday, ordinary things to show His extraordinary love for us. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, 
when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. One, one of the things that I, I really find fascinating about this book is the author gives so much detail in so many of these other areas, but, but here you would kind of expect to see William Wallace kind of dressed in his, uh, in, in his kilt, uh, and, and he's got a blue painted face, and he's shouting out to his people who are on one side of the battlefield and the other side of the battlefield. He's saying, they may take our lives, but they will not take our freedom. And he's shouting it out with a red face and blue paint. But here, the the author actually takes what is the most climactic point of the book and just simply states it, that there is a reversal that occurred. The Jews gained mastery over their enemies. And how did they do it? There was the decree. Remember the first decree, the decree that allowed the the Jews to, to be killed That was a decree that was given. Their property was allowed to be plundered. You had to have another decree with equal weight to allow the Jews to have a fighting chance. And the other decree that was given is that the Jews would be able to defend themselves. And Mordecai wrote the decree like the first, even allowing the Jews to take the plunder. But you see that when you read the book, it says two times they laid no hands on the plunder. They laid no hands on the plunder. I think it's incredible to see that, and and, and part of the reason why I think it's incredible to see that, because the purpose of this was not for the Jews to profit. It was to to defend themselves. There was a holy war that was declared, and the holy war that was declared was against the enemies of God to snuff them out, but, but God through his providence, gave another decree, and the decree was was simply that they would preserve their lives. And you see that preservation took place when the battle happened. The Jews were victorious, and they were victorious to the the tune of 75,800 people on the other side killed. 75,800 people that day lost their lives because they went after the army of God. They opposed God, and they lost their lives. Do you know that God always gives victory to those who are on His side? I I think it's important for us to see that we we don't get involved in culture wars here. We're not getting involved in, 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 in wars of rhetoric. But I think that the battle that, reign, that, that reigns supreme today is the battle over the human heart. That somehow, what Satan would seek to do is to steal our joy, to steal our affection, to steal our desire to worship God. That somehow the enemy might tell us that God is not our friend but our enemy, and so therefore we should be opposed to him. But the Bible says that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And the victory of God is for those who are simply with Him. All throughout history, we know that the people of God have not had an easy road. But we see that the people of God have been 
so powerfully preserved even in the midst of their difficulties. Much of the Bible is written not to the world around us or those who are unbelievers. The Bible is written to the people of God. Why? Because it's to give warning to the people of God that, that you're never to leave God. You're, you're never to go astray from Him. And even if you are to leave Him or go astray from Him, there's victory for you. And the victory for you isn't in what you do or what you accomplish, but the victory for you is in what Christ has accomplished. Because ultimately, the decree that God gives is, be holy as I am holy. That's the unchangeable law of God. That's the unchangeable law of God's holiness that says He demands perfection. In the garden, God created Adam and Eve, and He created them to worship Him wholeheartedly. He created them to love Him with their, all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, and all their strength. He created us for this very same reason. But in our rebellion, we chose to disobey God, to say, in effect, that God was a liar and He doesn't want what's best for us. We declared ourselves enemies against God. How does God give a defeated people who are deserving death victory after that? Well, there's a new decree. And the new decree is that in Jesus Christ, there's the fulfillment of the law perfectly. Because none of us can fulfill God's demand for perfection. None of us None of us can fulfill God's demand to be a a perfectly holy people. Because even when we're doing our very best, what happens? We get prideful and arrogant, and that's a sin. And we are deserving of the same damnation of those who are enemies of God because we've declared ourselves rebels against Him. And how does God give us victory? He gives us victory with the full weight and authority of His Son who's at his right hand, like Mordecai, of his son Jesus, who's the intermediary between us and our powerful God and Father. So the second decree allows us the freedom, saying that it is God who protects us. And how does God do that? He sent his son to die the death that we deserve. And so the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross is the victory that says it's not the Agagites who are our enemy. It's that we declared ourselves enemies against God. And the second decree said that his punishment was put upon Christ. And instead of God being our enemy, God is our friend. And so he's made us God's friends, God's family. He's the reason why Esther is a daughter of God, is that she would put her hope in the living God who would make an end to all her sin. We see that Mordecai was in the place of power where Haman was at the right hand of Xerxes and he was doing evil. Mordecai was at the right hand of Xerxes now. And Mordecai was given the full weight and authority of the king. And Mordecai had this place of prominence. You'll actually see in the story that there were many people who came over to the side of the Jews to help them. 
And so part of the reason why the Jews were able to gain mastery over their enemies is because God gave them favor through Mordecai, through powerful alliances in the right place. Mordecai was in power to undo the wicked law of Haman. We see also a little bit later that when the, the Jews had gained mastery over their enemies, that King Xerxes asked Esther, Esther, do you have any request for more? Do you, would, you, would you like anything else? And Esther says, well, I actually would like for you to give us another day to kill some more people. <laughs> that's, that's a little bit hard to handle in this passage. What, why is that there? That's an interesting question. Some commentators would say that this is bloody Esther. Instead of bloody Mary, it's bloody Esther. She, she had this desire, this lust for revenge. Now, I, I think that the Bible has no problems putting its characters in a real light, even showing us the dark side of them. But actually, one of the things that I believe as it, as it pertains to this is that Esther knew some information that we don't have available to us, and that's that if she were not to preemptively strike some of their enemies again, they would have came back another day. And so Esther knew that she had to put an end to the, those who would seek to kill them. And so she asked the king if she could preemptively strike those who, if she, they were not to do that, it would be a very bad day in the future that they would have to handle And so while she had the king's ear, she utilized it for that purpose. We see that the ten sons of Haman were killed. All the names that uh, TJ so eloquently pronounced. Nice job on those names, TJ. And and, and we see that those ten sons of Haman uh, were were those whom Haman recounted as his pride and joy. In chapter 5, verse 11, Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches the number of his sons, and the promotions with which the king had honored him. And now he had advanced him above all the officials and servants of the king. And how he had advanced him above all the servants and officials of the king. So Haman is bragging in chapter 5 of these three things. He's bragging of, of his wealth and his power. He's bragging about the, the, the legacy that he has in his sons. And he's bragging about the place that he has next to the king. And here in chapter 9, we see all of those things begin to drift away. All of those things begin to be taken from him. His wealth and power is given to Mordecai and Esther. That his place uh, uh, next to the king is also given to Mordecai. And his ten sons, whom he believes are to carry on his legacy, are killed in the battle. And not only killed in the battle, they're put up on stakes to put them on display as enemies of the Persian empires. Karen Jobes says that this is important because it leaves no room for someone to carry on his legacy of hateful pride. Because it would have been Haman's sons who would carry on this legacy of evil against the people of God. And it was also, would be also Haman's sons that would go against Xerxes. And so Xerxes made sure to put an end towards it as his sons were put on gallows. It's amazing how things can change in a blink of an eye, how there are times in life where we seem to be on top of the world and then all of a sudden we're brought down low. 
right? Have you ever had that experience before in life? Haman notwithstanding, we, we all go through that. And there are also times where, where we're maybe down at, in, the, in the dumps. We're down at the bottom. And we're in need of, of God's grace and mercy to, to fill us. And, and it's in those times where God gives us a worth and value that, that quite frankly, isn't in and of ourselves. This morning, you come into the room and maybe you're disheartened or discouraged. Maybe you're disappointed in yourself. Maybe you even think God's disappointed in you. Maybe you think that God doesn't love you and that God doesn't care for you. And if he did, why would he allow you to go through this? And you think these things that somehow God's disconnected from your reality. But just like Hadathah and the Jews... God was connected intimately to their reality. And God showed them His overwhelming love and care for them as He delivered them. And I think that we have to be mindful of that today because God so passionately loves us. We lose sight of the fact that that this God who's sovereign over all is the God who knows the number of hair on our heads. He he knows your name, church. He named you. He gave you that identity. He gave you that name. And He will see to it that your name is a name that lives for Him. Is a name that's that's about the name above all names. The name of Jesus Christ. And He gave you that name so that you would see that your life is to be lived for His glory and not your own. And so maybe you come and you feel overwhelmed and you feel disappointed and you feel discouraged. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. Because it's not like all those things just fly out the window overnight. You're going you're gonna to like say a prayer, take a pill, and it's all gone, right? I, I've not been able to do that. I've not been able to do that in life. Anybody ever have fear in life? Anybody ever have fear? No, one person. Wow, this, this, you guys are really good. Well, so I have fears sometimes, and, 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 and I want those fears to be taken away, and, and I'll go to bed with those fears, and you know what happens? I'll wake up in the morning, and they're still there. They're still there. And the Bible actually tells me that, that I, I should have no fear because I have faith, but yet it, it doesn't tell me that that fear is always going to go away. But one of the things that Jesus says is cast all your cares and anxieties on him because he cares for you. And so you can give him those fears. Your fear of failure, your fear of disappointment, your fear of death, your fear of, 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 di- of disappointing somebody else. Those fears are fears that you give to him and he gives you victory. And the victory doesn't mean that you'll never fear again. The victory just means that those fears are unwarranted. <laughs> right? They're unwarranted. You don't need to fear because God is the God of victory. Because the greatest failure could be seen as the, the failure of Christ on the cross when people looked at Jesus and they said to Jesus, save yourselves if you're the king of the Jews. Save yourself. Come down from that cross. But Jesus wasn't there to save himself. 
He was there to save you. And so the cross isn't seen as a monumental failure, but it's seen as a sign of victory. What would be the electric chair equivalent for us today? It would be a device of execution and saying we have victory in the electric chair. That's what we mean when we say we have victory in the cross. We have victory in the execution of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ didn't allow for his death to be the end of the story because he said it. I didn't say it. He said, no one takes my life, but I lay it down freely. Jesus Christ is the sovereign God who came down and laid his life down for us to show us that we have victory in him. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says he did this by canceling. Say that word with me. Canceling, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Through the cross. He canceled the debt that remained against God. He canceled the accusations of Satan that says that you're worthless, you're a disappointment, you're no good, God doesn't love you, God doesn't care for you. He canceled out all of those lies and any flaming dart of the enemy he extinguished by the cross, by the cross, by the cross. We have victory. And that's why Haman's purr became the Jews' Purim. Haman's purr became the Jews' Purim. Haman had casted lots. That's what the word purr means. He had casted lots in order to get an omen from the gods as to the divine favor that would allow him to have victory over the Jews. And Haman's purr became the Jews' celebration. It was their declaration that God is sovereign and that we are victorious. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast purr, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders, writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, that he and the sons should be hanged on the gallows. Do you know that One of the great dangers that we have, even as I said it earlier, is that we would forget that God has given us victory. Paul says in Colossians 1, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, I would remind you, I'm going to tell you something that you know. I'm going to tell you something that you've heard before, that you would acknowledge in your head. I want to remind you, brothers, something that you know. That's, that's, that's important for us to pay attention here. Of the gospel I preach to you, which you received. So there's something that we know, that we've received, that has been preached to us. And I'm going to remind it of you. In which you stand and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance. What was also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. I want to remind you of that gospel. 
The gospel that canceled the record of debt that stood between you and God. Do you know that the greatest danger of our generation of Christians, I don't think, is that we would fall into some uh, blatant sin? I, I think the greatest danger of our generation isn't that somehow we would, we would start worshiping other gods, even though that's a, a great danger and that could happen. I think the greatest danger of our generation of Christians is that we would forget what happened some 2,000 years ago on the cross and that, that event happened not just in history, but that event is about my history. That he did that for me. That we would simply pass off the work of Jesus Christ as a work that doesn't really have much significance to my life today. That somehow we would disconnect Sunday from Monday and that we would live our lives divorced from the life-changing power of the gospel and we would go with this amnesia, forgetting that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, thus declaring God's forever love for me. I remind you, brothers, of this gospel of first importance. How many, how many of you have... I've asked a lot of questions, and this one I want you to be honest with me because I haven't got a lot of good hands up in, in all this, but how, how many of you have ever wondered what the will of God was for your life? Anybody? Okay. Whew. You guys are good. Um, uh, I've, I've often wondered what the will of God is for my life and because I, I don't know the future. And I really would like to know the future because I think it would make me a lot less anxious than I am today if I just knew what was going to happen tomorrow. But in reality, if I knew what was going to happen tomorrow, I'd probably be freaking out a lot more. There's a woman named Karen Jobs. She actually wrote a commentary of, on, on the book of Esther. She says, The true test is living for Christ at this present moment. It's not about what you're going to do tomorrow. It's about what you're doing right now. She said, in the place where one happens to be, in whatever situation one finds himself or herself, as I tried to search out God's will and plan to change my life accordingly, God was leading me silently, yet inexorably, from decision to decision, from situation to situation, one things lead to another in the chain of unbreakable time. As the saying goes, life is what is happening while you're making other plans. Anybody ever experienced that? You're, you're busy making other plans and life is happening right before you right now. Although I never did get that certain sign of God's will, I saw it as a new Christian. God has undeniably worked in the ordinary moments of my life to take me from being a babe in Christ who never read my Bible to a professor of New Testament studies some 25 years later. And some of the ordinary moments along the way were in fact quite extraordinary. That God's will shows up not when we make our plans perfectly, but God's will shows up as man determines his plan, but God ultimately determines our direction. That God is the one who's sovereignly moving. And our job isn't to figure it all out. Our job is to remember that he is our God and we is our, are his people and we're called to trust him. It's that 
remembrance. And the remembrance leads to a celebration. Because the celebration is the fact that God has delivered His people. It's not that 75,800 people died that day. It's that God delivers His people. The reason why we celebrate Easter Sunday is to say that Good Friday was not the end of the story. That Jesus isn't just dead on a cross, and that's the picture that still remains. But if you've looked at the picture, the cross is empty, and the tomb has been robbed because Jesus has rose from the grave. And that celebration is a celebration of deliverance. In Colossians 1, 13 and 14, it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. That there's this transaction that happened, that God took us from the domain of darkness and death and His wrath, and He brought us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, His only Son, His perfect Son. God brought us there. And that's the redemption that we experience. And that's the redemption that we celebrate. We are to be a celebratory people. We're to be a people that know how to party, church. We're to be a people that gather together and call to mind the remembrance of God. You know, you know what? On, on Friday, we celebrated Donut Day, National Donut Day, for crying out loud. There's more people celebrating National Donut Day than Easter Sunday. Can we turn that thing around, church? We should celebrate the grace and mercy and salvation of God that's full and final and a lot better than a glazed donut, for crying out loud. And I could eat a few glazed donuts, if you haven't noticed. But Jesus Christ is risen. The grave is empty. And we've been given victory. And yet we're living in this wallowing of defeat. Church, we have this defeatism. I have it. You have it. I think it's a satanic work that has to be crushed. I think that there's a domain of darkness that hovers over us that the blood of Christ needs to bring a purity to. And that's the work that I am praying becomes the end. This wrestle against flesh and blood is the wrestle that Jesus Christ has already won. And it's the wrestle that we have victory over today. It's the celebration of the gathered church. It's reason why the Jews celebrate Purim today, 2,500 years later. They were obligated to. I'm going to obligate my kids to celebrate Easter every year. I'm going to make them do it. I'm, I'm going to, as long as they're living in my house, here, here, unchangeable, as long as they're living in my house, they're in church. And here's why, here's why. It's because I don't, I don't want them to become these, these kind of rule-hating little Pharisees. I want them to become graced-filled rememberers of what God has done. I don't ever want them to leave the God that I love. And for generation after generation, as long as God allows my family and my legacy to be on this planet, I want it to represent a worshiping people. Friends, stay close to God and stay close to His church. I know we're not perfect. But friends, I'm telling you, the further you get from God's church, the more you forget 
God's love and His grace for you. I'm, I'm just telling you, and I say that with all the love in the world, and I will tell you very frankly that tr- this church is far from perfect, and we have God's grace and redemption that's needed, but I am telling you, friends, this is God's beautiful mess, and it's His chosen way by the power of His Holy Spirit to keep you close. Stay close to Him in, in this deliverance and celebrate it together. I want to close with this. Have you heard uh, Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, shall not want. We read this yesterday at Gina's funeral, but I want us to to think about this anti-psalm. So a psalm, uh, anti-psalm that David Paulson wrote as kind of a juxtaposition against the Psalm 23. Maybe you can resonate with what he says. He says, I'm on my own. No one looks out for me or protects me. I experience a continual sense of need. Nothing's quite right. I'm always restless. I'm easily frustrated and often disappointed. It's a jungle. I feel overwhelmed. It's a desert. I'm thirsty. My soul feels broken, twisted, and stuck. I can't fix myself. I stumble down some dark paths. Still, I insist I want to do what I want. When I want, how I want. (laughs) Sounds like me sometimes. Probably a lot more than I'd like to admit. But life's confusing. Why don't things ever really work out? I'm haunted by the emptiness and futility, shadows and death. I fear the big hurt and final loss. Death is waiting for me at the end of every road. But I'd rather not think about that. I spend my life protecting myself. Bad things can happen. I find no lasting comfort. I'm alone, facing everything that could hurt me. And my friends, are my friends really my friends? Other people use me for their own ends. I can't really trust anyone. No one has my back. No one is really for me except me. And I'm so much all about me, sometimes it's sickening. I belong to no one except myself. My cup is never quite full enough. I'm still left empty. Disappointment follows me all the days of my life. I will just be obliterated into nothingness. Will I be alone forever, homeless, free-falling into a void? Sartre said, hell is for other people. I have to add, hell is also myself. It's a living death. And then I die. The anti-psalm that David Paulson writes is the psalm that says there is no God. And he doesn't care for you. And he doesn't love you. And so you're left to yourself. That's the anti-psalm. But, but I want to read to you the psalm that God gave us in Psalm 23. The psalm that Jesus actually went ahead of us to fulfill. It says this. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. 
even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And the church says, Amen. Father, we thank you that, God, you have given us sure and steadfast victory and that you call to mind remembrance here that we don't just look at it as the victory that was given the Jews some 2,500 years ago, that we don't just look at the event of the cross as something that happened 2,000 years ago and is disconnected from our lives, but we see you there as the good shepherd who is with your rod and staff to comfort us, God, because we know that it's through the cross that you give us the promise of victory. We know that it's through the cross, God, that you fill our lives with hope that had not previously been there before. We know that it's through the cross, God, that you give us worth and value. We know that it's through the cross that you make us your own, and that allows us to say, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, all the days of my life. Father, you are worthy of our worship here. We honor you. We receive your goodness, grace, and glory as a gift here. And we say to you, God, help us remember you. Help us celebrate you. And help us, God, be a people that live our lives for your glory and trust you with all that we are. In Christ's name, amen. Stand with me. We're going to take communion, and in in communion we remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And we take the bread and we dip into the cup. We remember that all the disappointments, all the fears, all the failures, all the feelings that says that God isn't with us, well, they, they begin to wash away when we remember that His body was broken and His blood was shed to say that you are never forsaken. He will never leave you. And He's right here in our midst. When you're ready to take communion, please do and receive this wonderful meal of God's fulfillment.